what we're going to do is to try to get through this PowerPoint tonight. We will see if we make it or not. Uh, one of the problems that I'm having, I just want to confess to you all, uh, is that there is so much to talk about with each one of these things that trying to like squish it into an hour uh, is really difficult. But otherwise, we would be going on into eternity. So um, we're going we're gonna to see what we can do. But what we're doing is we're talking about C.S. Lewis and friendship. And remember, way back to our first class, we were talking about why is it that C.S. Lewis is so unbelievably relevant to our culture today. And we came up with a couple of reasons. But one of those was authenticity. The idea that he speaks without guile, he speaks with humility, and he also was really prophetic in terms of his understanding of the direction in which our culture was heading. And so he was very aware that this whole idea of friendship was one that was in peril. And so he wanted to try to rehabilitate the idea of friendship, particularly within the church, uh, so that as this crisis of loneliness and alienation uh, began to get worse, the church would have the antidote. And we talked a little bit about the fact that Greek philosophy undergirds some of what Lewis says, but it's Greek philosophy that's completely consonant with scripture. So Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, uh, commend that part on friendship to you that was in the handout. Um, it looks daunting, and whenever you see the word Nicomachean, you automatically think, well, I'm not gonna understand that. Uh, but going back to our ducky and horsey analogy, uh, it is really, it's really, if you sit down and read it, there's a lot of ducky and horsey in there. It's not that bad. So I commend that to you. But he talks about these three types of friendship, utility, pleasure, and then goodness. And what we talked about was that, unfortunately, what's mostly known in our culture is the friendship of utility, where we use people to get something. And there's some end in mind that we have, and that person is useful to us in some way, um, or that we just think that the person is entertaining and that that is the basis for friendship. And what Aristotle says and what Lewis builds on is that those are lesser forms of friendship that are predicated on selfishness and that the greater good is in this type of friendship that's characterized by goodness where you love the other person, not because of something you can get out of them, but because you appreciate the gifts that God has put into that person and you desire to um, intentionally serve that person and love that person. Uh, very different, and virtue results from that. And so for Lewis, this is deeply connected to the idea of truth. And part of that is that he believes the true basis for deep friendship is that quotation uh, that's so wonderful where he says, what, you two, I thought I was the only one. And then he says, friends stand side by side, seeing and celebrating the same truth. That what bonds them together is their common perspective on the truth. And he says, this is even more deeply true for Christians because the truth of the gospel, we are bonded through that. Uh, this mythopoeia and worldview, remember when we were talking about that poem, one of the major things in the poem is the idea of humans 
as the summit of God's creation, qualitatively different from anything else that was made. The only creatures given the power of speech, the only creatures given the power to create and imagine, the only creatures given the power to understand who God is. And so because of that view of what it means to be human, and since Henry Fishman's back, I can pick on it again, um, as opposed to being in the nihilistic, atheistic, materialistic worldview, where Henry Fishburne, a cockroach, a rock, and a dead leaf are all equivalent because they're all just atoms and it's all an accident and they're all going to return to atoms. That presents a very different view of human beings than made in the image of God, the summit of creation, the only ones with speech, the only ones with the power to imagine and create. So because of that, Lewis says humans are worth investing in. And then the influence of scripture, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. So scripture, this is from the Last Supper uh, discourses. Jesus' last night with his disciples, obviously what he says the last time he's with them might be kind of important. And so it's interesting because one of the few places in scripture where Jesus commands something, it's very rare for Jesus to command something. And here he commands over and over and over again that we love one another. And he's talking to this group of friends. And as I said last week, we misimagine this because we've seen too many stained glass windows and Renaissance paintings. And we think they're a bunch of grizzled old men with lines on their face and long gray beards and sort of stern expressions. And the fact of the matter is most scholars believe at the Last Supper that most of the disciples were somewhere in the range of 16 to 30 years old. So it's much, much younger than we imagine it. And Jesus is giving this instruction not to the world in general, but to his followers, his closest followers. And there's this command to love, and he talks about friendship. And the idea that is that a friend isn't a servant, but a friend for him, he has made known all that the Father has shared with him with that friend. And that's a beautiful model for us to think about sharing what has the Father given us or taught us or what word has he given us and sharing that with our friends. So this is really rich. We talked about it last week, so I'm going to skip on. Um, the weight of glory is where Lewis most fully develops his theology of friendship early on before he writes the four loves later. And part of what he says here, based on the scripture that we just read, is that every person created in the image of God, every person is going to live eternally. The only things that are eternal are other people and the kingdom of God. All of our civilization and culture and art and everything else is going to perish into dust. But human beings made in the image of God are going to either live eternally with God or eternally without God. And therefore, they are infinitely precious. And for Lewis, um, he says they are next to the sacrament itself, which for him is an Anglo-Catholic, which is a really strong statement, um, that your neighbor is the most holy object presented to your senses. And therefore, the way that you treat people is unbelievably important. It's probably the most important thing in your life besides your relationship with God. So hugely important. And 
Then this idea of the power of conversation. We talked a little bit about all of the research that's out there right now about alienation in our culture. We talked about how the UK has appointed a national minister of loneliness because of the public health epidemic that is caused by lack of connection. Is that what they call it? Yeah, yeah the minister of loneliness. It sounds like a title of a bad novel, but it's a, it's a real thing. So. Part of, the, part of the deal with this is that um, in this digital age, and Lewis would have a field day with this, and Tolkien would too, because they were such sticklers for use of words, the idea that you have Facebook friends would just make them blow up in a frenzy. Um, but the idea that you could be friends with somebody that you've never actually met, yeah. So you can imagine. But anyway, this, this is an excerpt from that article that was off the Art of Manliness blog, of all places, uh, which shows the world is starting to figure out that Lewis and Tolkien have something to say to us that we desperately need to hear. And part of this is just talking about the power of conversation. And we talked about how people have forgotten how to have a conversation. All of you probably have the experience of being in restaurants, where you see people um, who are clearly together, they didn't just end up sitting at a community table, they're at the same table and they're on screens the whole time. Sometimes they're actually talking to each other on the screen, but they don't know how to talk. And one of the things that was so bizarre when I was doing a lot of school ministry is that you would have students that would say, you know, I am talking, talking to this girl which means that you're texting, but when they actually were together, it was like impossible to say anything. <laughs> and they were trying to figure out how to overcome that. But anyway, conversation is an art that needs to be rediscovered. And Lewis and Tolkien are brilliant teachers for this, following in the footsteps of Jesus. You probably never read the gospel from the perspective of how does Jesus have conversations with people? But I would encourage you to do that sometime because it is remarkable to look at how he does that. So, questions to ponder that we ended up with last week. Is my view of friendship more like the one in our culture or is it more like Lewis's theology of friendship drawn from scripture? How much time do I spend nurturing my friendships? Nurturing is a big, strong word. <coughs> How are my friends influencing me? How am I influencing them? Remember, Lewis and Tolkien called out of each other this unbelievable giftedness that resulted in thousands of pages of unbelievably beautiful writing that both of them said would never have happened if they hadn't met each other. So it's interesting to think about what's coming out of our friendships. Then. What task or calling lies ahead of me that requires a community of support? What is that dream that God has planted in your heart that you can't accomplish by yourself, but you need a community around you to encourage you? And how are you investing in nurturing, encouraging, calling out the gifts and your friends? I would like to suggest that this is a radically countercultural view of friendship and one that we are desperately in need of recovering as God's people. 
because there are people that are literally dying of loneliness all around us, some of them within the church, because we have forgotten how to practice this art of friendship. So we're going to look a little bit tonight at Lewis as an example. And this part of this was really hard for me because Lewis has so many fascinating friendships. And so I had to just pull a little sample that I thought was indicative of certain things that were important in friendship. Lewis was a very deliberate, intentional person. He was someone who lived a very thoughtful, intentional life after his conversion. And you might remember way back early on um, in the interview with Lewis's secretary, Walter Hooper, um, who talked about Lewis being the most thoroughly converted man that he knew. And he said the most amazing thing that happened when Lewis was converted is it was as if his ego had just gone away and he became profoundly humble. And you see that as we start going into looking at some of Lewis's friendships. Arthur Greaves was Lewis's oldest friend. Uh, he lived across the street from Lewis when they were children um, in Northern Ireland. Um, they became friends when uh, Arthur's mom called Lewis's father and said, Arthur is sick and bored. Could you send your son over to talk with him? Now, just imagine if your mother said, you've got to go across the street and talk to the boy who's sick because he's bored. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? But anyway, Lewis went over there with a very bad attitude. Remember, he always says about himself he was quite a prig when he was a boy. So he goes over there with this bad attitude. He's like, Ugh. And he walks in, and on the table next to Arthur Greaves' bed, is this book, Teutonic Myths. And he picks it up and he literally says, what, do you like this? And Arthur Greaves says, yes, do you even know what this is? And Lewis is like, yes, I've read it. And they immediately just bond over that uh, in a really profound way. And uh, Lewis and Greaves corresponded throughout the rest of their lives um, they had a very deep friendship. They were extremely open and vulnerable with one another. And Lewis cherished this friendship, even though once Lewis went to England, Greaves stayed in Northern Ireland. Once Lewis went to England and was educated, Lewis far outgrew Arthur Greaves intellectually. But he never lorded that over him and continued to stay in regular contact with him, visiting him. And Arthur Greaves was a deeply Christian man. He argued with Lewis before Tolkien did, just not as successfully, because he didn't have Tolkien's intellectual gifts. But he argued with Lewis and tried to get Lewis to come around to the Christian point of view. Now, one of the things that's particularly interesting about this friendship, especially given evangelical culture today, is that when Greaves was around 25, he revealed to Lewis that he was homosexual. And Lewis, of course, would never countenance using the word gay for homosexuality. But the interesting thing is they had a little theological talk about that. And Lewis's position was that the scriptures make it clear that acting out homosexual desires is a violation of scripture. And they came to the conclusion that the 
Christian homosexual is more or less in the same position as an unmarried person where celibacy is what you were called to. And so Arthur Greaves lived celibate for the rest of his life. He didn't wear the homosexuality on his sleeve. But it's just interesting that Lewis, that was not an obstacle in their relationship. He continued to love and care for him, but to speak the truth in love to him. So Arthur Greaves, Lewis's oldest friend. Another friend, and we're going to talk more about the Inklings later. I'm talking more about specific individual friendships tonight. Um, Charles Williams. Charles Williams is one of the most fascinating people you could ever study about. A very, very, very brilliant man with a very different background. He was from the wrong social class. He had the wrong accent. He should never have been at Oxford, but he ended up there. And Lewis and Charles Williams have the most bizarre way of meeting each other that you could ever imagine. And in your uh, handouts, you will have uh, a letter to uh, Charles Williams that I would like you to just pull up for a moment and look at the side that has a little star on it that says to Charles Williams. And what had happened was that Lewis had read a novel that Charles Williams wrote called Place of the Lion. And to uh, use some slang that is uh, appropriate, it rocked Lewis's world when he read it. He was blown away by this book. And Lewis, remember, is a very smart guy. He's a professor at Oxford at this point, brilliant, but he is blown away by this book to the point that he sits down and writes a fan letter to the author, which is not something that he did very often. And you'll notice the first part, I never know about writing to an author. If you're older than I, I don't want to seem impertinent. If you are younger, I don't want to seem patronizing but I feel I must risk it. A book sometimes crosses one's path, which is so like the sound of one's native language in a strange country that it feels almost uncivil not to wave some kind of flag in answer. And it just gets better as you go on. But the thing that's so funny is down at the bottom, he uh, says, can you come down someday next term? Or he's never met this guy. Can you come down someday next term, preferably not Saturday or Sunday, spend the night as my guest in college, eat with us at a chop house, and talk with us until the small hours. <laughs> Lewis recognized through Williams's writing a kindred soul who saw the same truth and he was not going to waste any time on social niceties. And what you see here reminds him with advice that I heard from a minister on a completely different topic several years ago. And basically he said, wherever you see the Holy Spirit at work, get on that train. Don't miss that train where you see the Holy Spirit at work. Get on it. Don't let anything get in the way. Get on that train. And Lewis is like that with friendship. When that spark happens, and that truth resonates, he jumps in. And just before what I read, he talks about the Inklings. He says, we have a sort of informal club called the Inklings. The qualifications, as they've informally evolved, are a tendency to write and Christianity, which is a great description of that little group. But the funny thing is if you look on the other side where the italics are, 
you will see Williams's reply, My dear Mr. Lewis, if you had delayed writing another 24 hours, our letters would have crossed. It has never before happened to me to be admiring an author of a book while he was at the same time was admiring me. My admiration for the staff work of the omnipotence rises every day. And basically, he was reading Lewis's book, The Allegory of Love, at the same time that Lewis was reading Williams's book, Place of the Lion. And he was, Williams was overwhelmed with how awesome Lewis's book was and wrote him a letter. So the result of all of that is that Williams invites Lewis to come down to London, and they go out to lunch, and this is referred to by Lewis later as a certain immortal lunch, um, lunch that lasted five hours, um, where they went to the restaurant, and they eventually got thrown out of the restaurant because the lunch hour was over and they were closing, and so they went to the cemetery of St. Paul's Cathedral, whose choir we just heard, and they sat in the churchyard and talked for two or three hours, and they, they were just tripping over each other because they had this same truth, the same mythopoeic imagination, uh, and the idea about how you can express the truth of the gospel through writing. So Williams became part of the Inklings. Um, he was a deeply imaginative and thoughtful person, and he inspired Lewis on many, many, many fronts we don't even have time to talk about, um, both as a writer and as a Christian. That Hideous Strength, which is possibly my favorite book by C.S. Lewis, deeply inspired by Lewis, um, by Williams. So it is remarkable what they were able to call out of each other. Uh, Williams other than Lewis, was the most popular lecturer at Oxford in the early 1940s. Um, there's a great story told about how, and I don't know if you know how Oxford works, but you have a tutor that you meet with individually, and then there are lectures that are in these big lecture halls. And so there are different lectures and different topics going on each day. Um, Lewis and Williams were both hugely popular. And there happened to be one day where Lewis Tolkien and Williams were all lecturing on different topics at the same time in three different very large lecture halls. And Lewis's lecture hall was filled to overflowing standing room only people hanging out the door. Williams's lecture hall filled to overflowing people standing and hanging out the door. Tolkien had one person. <laughs> And the one person said, I'm not even in this lecture, but my friends asked me to come take notes because they wanted to go hear Lewis. <laughs> so fortunately, Tolkien did not really hold that against them. But Charles Williams, just another example of this combustible energy that happened when these two men encountered each other. And when you have time, go back and read those letters because what I want you to notice is there is a level of vulnerability and humility in those letters that is remarkable. Think about Lewis, the most popular lecturer at Oxford, practically begging to meet with this guy that he's never even talked to before. That's not the way professors who are usually stuck on themselves typically act. And again, their faith is a very deep part of their friendship. 
Another one of Lewis's closest friends, Father Walter Adams. Uh, Walter Adams was a member of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, uh, which is an Anglo-Catholic monastic order. Father Adams, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And he had a reputation in Oxford for being very wise and being very deeply Christian in a transformative, cross-cultural um, kind of way, uh, being really invested in a scriptural understanding of what it means to follow Christ. And so Lewis went to meet with him and says basically that he fell in love with the man and his faith. And so every Friday afternoon for the next 12 years, Lewis met with him for two to three hours. Now, just think about that. Lewis was a very, very busy man. He commuted, he had this crazy household situation that we'll talk about later, where he was expected to buy the groceries and do a lot of the housework. Um, that's a whole nother story. So he had all of that, he had all of his students, he had his lectures, uh, he had his writing, and yet he was able to find two to three hours a week to go and meet with Father Adams. And they had a deeply vulnerable relationship where they would talk about their experience of what it meant to try to follow Jesus. And they would talk about um, the things of the kingdom of God. They would pray for each other for long periods of time. And one of the things Father Adams realized that Lewis in his heart was thoroughly converted. But in terms of his understanding about the Christian faith, he had a lot of great intuition, but he didn't really know a lot about spiritual practice, spiritual discipline, how to keep your faith growing and alive. And so Father Adams worked with him and introduced Lewis to liturgy. Lewis knew about liturgy because he went to a Church of England service, but he didn't like it. He thought it was boring. But Father Adams opened his eyes I think through the Holy Spirit to see the beauty of liturgy and how it was drawn from scripture and the tradition of temple worship and that this whole liturgy was a beautiful thing. Lewis, through Father Adams, became a big fan of the 1662 prayer book, which was the one that the Church of England was using until just recently, very similar to our prayer book. Um, the daily office, the daily office of the scripture lessons that are in the lectionary um, that are designed to be read each day, and then praying through the Psalter each month. So part of the idea is that Lewis would later say that Father Adams taught him how to pray. He also taught him how to practice self-examination and repentance. Um, he taught him how to confront situations and to confront people when there were problems and to keep short accounts all sorts of really deep spiritual wisdom. Uh, but the whole idea of having learned how to pray was one of Father Adam's chief contributions to Lewis. And then at the death of Father Adams, uh, which was very unexpected in 1952, he had a heart attack, Lewis was absolutely devastated. And he wrote to another of his friends, and said, please pray for me because this man I love so dearly has died. I feel like a poor orphan. Pretty strong language. And 
the interesting thing is no one has ever heard of this man. Um, I will not tell you what I went through to find that terrible photograph. Um, I'm pretty good at internet searching, but there's just not, someone needs to write a book about him, which I would love to do, but I don't have time right now. Um, but he had a huge influence. Now, one of the other things that's interesting is there's this big age gap. One of the other things about Lewis is he had friends that were way older than he was and friends that were way younger than he was. And so long as they were focused on the same truth, he was deeply invested in all those relationships. So, Father Adams, you can actually go um, and see where they used to meet. Um, St. Stephen's House um, at Oxford is the old Cowley Fathers Monastery. And I've had the privilege of staying there and doing the retreat where they used to meet and all of that. It's just, it's an amazing place. So another friend, talk about an unlikely friend, Sister Penelope. Sounds like a bad joke. But Sister Penelope was, again, part of this order of St. Mary the Virgin which was an Anglo-Catholic order that a lot of English people said was more Catholic than the Catholics. Full of incense, smells, and bells, all of the whole nine yards um, in this convent right outside of Oxford. And Lewis, once again, met Sister Penelope through uh, letters. And she sent him a fan letter about his first science fiction book, Out of the Silent Planet. Now that might not suggest, that might suggest she's not your normal nun. Um, you don't usually picture nuns sitting around reading science fiction books. Uh, but she read this book and she was deeply impressed. And I would encourage you, if you've got your handouts, to pull out uh, the letter that has Sister Penelope uh, with the little star on it. And there is this great introduction. And just as an aside, please read Lewis's letters. They're so good. They're just amazing. Every single one of them, it's remarkable. So anyway, he starts off, Dear Madam, thank you very much for the book and for your kind letter. The letter raises for me rather than an acute problem. Do I become more proud in trying to resist or in frankly reveling in the pleasure it gives me? One hopes there will come a day when one can enjoy nice things said about oneself just in the same innocent way as one enjoys nice things about anyone else. Perfect humility will need no modesty. In the meantime, it is not so. <laughs> um, but the rest of the letter is on the back, and we're not going to go through all of it, but I'm going to skip down to the end. And at the closing, he says, Though I'm 40 years old as a man, I'm only about 12 as a Christian. So it would be a maternal act if you found time sometimes to mention me in your prayers. Talk about humility. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. Well, they became fast friends. And Sister Penelope was a genius. And Lewis really encouraged her to write. She also was a deeply pious woman who encouraged Lewis to use the gifts that he had to do more theological writing. So she was very, very important in Lewis's life. He called her the uh, elder sister in the faith. Um, his book, Paralandra, which is the second part of the space trilogy, uh, is actually dedicated to her and her community. And if you've never read Paralandra, that's another one I would commend to you. 
I think Lewis's best fantasy writing is in Paralandra. His description of this planet it's based on Venus is just absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful. But this is the one I mentioned I got a little bit wrong a couple of weeks ago, but in the dedication, uh, it says to some ladies, capital L ladies, of Wantage, which was the community. And when it was translated, I thought it was Italian, but it's actually Portuguese. When it's translated into the Portuguese, the translator messed up and said the dedication in the Portuguese edition says to some wanton women. <laughs> which Sister Penelope felt that was like the funniest thing she had ever heard in her life. But they had this mutual encouragement of writing and spiritual devotion. And Sister Penelope, who had hardly written anything before she met Lewis, ended up writing dozens of books and coming out with what was at the time the world standard best translation of Athanasius's treatise on the Incarnation. So if you remember way back to our first class when I handed out the, on reading old books, that's actually the preface that Lewis wrote for Sister Penelope's translation of De Incarnazione. So um, another just remarkable friendship. And you look at Lewis, the beer-drinking, jovial, pipe-smoking guy, and you think, one of his best friends is a nun? And the answer is yes. Uh, another dear friend of Lewis, Roger Lancelin Green. Some of you, if you uh, are big fans of mythopoeic literature, uh, will have heard of him. A very, very, very famous author, particularly in England. Um, lots and lots of fairy stories. Um, the world expert on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote what? Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I wish I had known this guy because he sounds like so much fun, but in his country house, he recreated 221B Baker Street oh. in the <laughs> attic. And um, his children just loved it. And Lewis would go down there and sometimes they would dress up and go up there and pretend to be Holmes and Watson, which is just such a great story. It's only eclipsed by the costume party that Lewis and Tolkien went to together, both dressed as polar bears. Um, never think Lewis didn't have a great sense of humor. So Roger Lancelin Green uh, was one of Lewis's students. Lewis became very close friends with many, many, many of his students. And if you look, you have a letter um, to Roger um, from Lewis. Uh, so if you find where it says to Roger Lenson Green on the side with the little star. And you'll notice he says, thank you, thanks for the kind letter. I don't think letters to author in praise of their works really require an apology, for they always give pleasure. You are obviously much better informed than I about this type of literature, and the only thing I can add to your list is Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay, and he goes on. Well, the remarkable thing about this, notice he says, you know much, you're much better informed than I am. Roger Lancelin Green was 18 when Lewis wrote this letter to him. He knew Roger Lancelin Green out of all of the hundreds of students at his lecture because Lewis was famous for not being able to keep track of what time it was. And Roger Lancelin Green loved Lewis's lectures, so he would literally sit at the foot of the podium, and Lewis had to keep borrowing his watch 
So that is how they got to know each other. But after uh, Green graduated from Oxford, they continued to keep in touch, and Green was deeply affected by Lewis and this whole idea of sub-creation, the mythopoic imagination, the power of myth and fantasy to communicate spiritual truth. So they encouraged each other. Um, they drew out these writings. Green was one of the formative people for Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia because he was glad to have a younger reader of a slightly different generation to help him understand how people might perceive it. So he was hugely important in that. Um, Lewis dedicated the last book that he wrote, The Discarded Image, to Green. And one of the beautiful things that Green did is that when Lewis uh, and his wife Joy planned this trip to Greece uh, right before Joy became completely incapacitated from cancer, this younger couple took this older couple to Greece, did everything for them on this trip, ministered to them in all kinds of ways, prayed for them, made the trip a, just a time of joy for Lewis and his wife. So again, even though he was much younger, one of Lewis's deepest friendships that lasted until the very end of his life. Dom Bede Griffiths, another former student. Um, Dom Bede was a student at Maudlin. Um, he was an atheist. He and Lewis were both atheists together um, early on. Um, he converted to Catholicism from atheism, so he went whole hog in the other direction and became a monk, which is pretty strong, um, became a monk and then was ordained to the priesthood. And he and Lewis were very, very close. Um, and they had a common interest in theology, but they disagreed about all sorts of things. So it's sort of like that relationship with Owen Barfield that we talked about, that they sparred with each other, but it was one of those iron sharpens iron kind of relationships. There was again this mutual encouragement of writing and spiritual devotion. They prayed for each other in their letters. They talk about things that they're struggling with, um, a relationship of great joy for both of them. And then Lewis, interestingly, dedicated his autobiography to him. So yet another uh, example of a friendship that grew from a former student. So we could go on and on, but there, there are a couple of threads that I'm going to pick up. And there are so many other people we could have talked about. We're going to talk more about the Inklings later in that group friendship. But in terms of things that we can draw out from here, one of the things you see with Lewis is that he had friends of many ages and backgrounds. And one of the things that is sort of funny is that we pride ourselves today, you know, one of our, some of the buzzwords of our culture, inclusivity and diversity. But Lewis actually, for the time period that he was alive, was pretty shockingly inclusive and diverse. Remember, during this time period, England is very stratified socially. There are different classes. Um, and Lewis just paid no attention to that. He had friends that were socially respectable. He had friends that were lords. He was very close friends with the butcher in his village and everything in between. Um, he had friends that were all ages, people that were 30 years younger than he was, people who were 30 years older than he was. Uh, 
He has a core of deeply Christian friends. He has a lot of friends who are not Christians, but he has this core of deeply Christian friends that he, as we would say today, does life with. That he is deeply invested in those relationships, seeing those people multiple times a week, praying with them, praying for them. It's a whole other thing we could do on Lewis's prayer life, but he was deeply committed to praying for his friends every day. And not just saying, God bless Susie, but praying <laughs> at length for them. Uh, another thing that was really interesting as you look at Lewis's relationships is that he is bold about taking the initiative. When he has one of those experiences where there's that spark of mutual truth, mutual appreciation, he becomes like a terrier going after that person. And part of it is because he believed that was a gift from God. That when you have that experience of seeing the same truth with another human being out of all of the millions and billions of people in the world that there are, that is to be treasured. That is to be cultivated. That is something that is going to endure in eternity. That relationships for Lewis are in the perspective of eternity, not just our temporal life. So that's very, very important. Another thing that's interesting is he was a huge encourager for all sorts of people, uh, little children right up through adults, but particularly with his close friends. And this really comes out when you read his letters. He's the kind of person that if he was going to tell you something that he didn't like in your writing, he would do it in such a way that you just felt profoundly grateful for it and moved by it. Um, that is a gift, and it came, I think, because he was so deeply thoughtful and so conscious of really living out the golden rule. One of the things about the golden rule in friendship is that our culture misunderstands what Jesus says, because Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what we usually dumb that down to is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. If I don't want Henry Fishburne to insult me, I should probably stop calling him a cockroach. <laughs> so we, we think that it means just plain nice, but that's not what it means. What it means is that we are to think about what would make me have a really great day? What are the things that contribute to joy in my life? And then to think about my friend and think about what would really create joy in that person's life and then actively move myself to go and do those things that would bring joy for the other person. It is very proactive. And Lewis really got that and practiced that. He was a great gift giver. He was a great note writer, all of those kinds of things, hugely into encouragement which is just unbelievably surprising given the job and the rank and prestige that he had. It's a mark of his humility. Um, humility and willingness to learn. Lewis would learn from anyone, whether it was a child, whether it was a PhD, whether it was a priest, whether it was a student who was a Christian. He believed that everybody was made in the image of God and had gifts to offer to him and that he was just the humble and grateful recipient of the blessing that could come to him 
through others. Um, committed prayer, we've already talked about. Lewis spent long periods of time praying for other people. And as he met more and more people, he would commit to pray for them. And finally, he got kind of overwhelmed because he had like this book with like name after name after name, with pages and pages and pages. And so he finally took it to Father Adams one week and said, I feel really guilty, but you know, it's taking me like three hours to get through my prayer list and I'm beginning to feel like it's a duty instead of a joy. Well, just the fact that that's the way he handled it is pretty amazing because if, if I had been in that position, I probably would have just ripped out a few pages and <laughs> on, sorry to say. But, you know, he, he believed in prayer and believed it was vitally important and saw that as part of sub-creation, that our aligning ourselves with the will of God in prayer is part of the way that we help create what God is doing in this world. Um, he believed deeply in having a mentor or a spiritual director, not somebody who's saying, do this or you will go to hell, not that kind of thing, uh, but someone to talk about the things of the faith, to give advice, someone who was wiser than he. And Lewis believed wisdom did not necessarily go with age. Sometimes it did, but he was also very willing to learn spiritually from somebody who was much younger. Um, Peter Bide is a good example of who was a former student of Lewis's who became an Anglican priest. Um, and Lewis would consult him about things from time to time. Um, Lewis also believed that part of being a Christian meant that you needed to be constantly looking for people to mentor in the faith. He believed that that was Jesus's method of spreading the faith and that if you were blessed, you were blessed to be a blessing and that you were to invest your life deeply in those who were younger. And it's literally amazing to look at just the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people that Lewis touched through the time that he was uh, a professor and then through running uh, the Socratic Club, which was a Christian debate society at Oxford. And it's just, it's remarkable uh, to look at the impact that he had. Uh, one of my friends who we'll talk about more later, uh, who is a elderly lady in England now, um, was recounting to me when Lewis used to uh, come in to their uh, Christian fellowship group in college. And she could still remember the three points of the first talk that he gave. He made that deep an impression. And she was able to spend some time with him because Lewis was friends with her father and was just amazed that he would take an interest in her as a young woman um, during this time period where women were not usually thought of as suitable for intellectual conversation, um, that he would talk with her and they would have these deep conversations. So Lewis was just wired where he was continually looking for how to pour himself out um, into someone else's life. Um, faithfulness over the long haul. Lewis did not abandon friendships. Uh, the people that he became friends with, he largely stayed friends with until the end of his life. 
Most of you all know the story that really up until the day he died, literally, Lewis was returning every single letter that he was written. It's remarkable. Um, one of the remarkable things, some of you know who Tim Keller is, uh, who's the pastor at Redeemer Press, and great author. His wife, Kathy, was converted by reading the Chronicles of Narnia when she was about 12 years old and wrote Lewis a letter when she was 13 and he wrote her back. <laughs> it's an amazing thing and she still has that letter. It's one of her treasured possessions. And then lastly, Lewis put such a priority on friendship. Any of us who think we're busy, Lewis was busier, I will guarantee, than any person in this room. And yet, he managed to find time not only for the inklings and for these people that were close to him, but also to mentor people who were younger. And he put a huge priority on that, that he would not miss that. So, some thoughts about how we can apply this. Uh, you could write a whole book about this topic, but these are just some of the things that um, I think are high points. One is to assess honestly how your friendships fit or don't fit uh, a scriptural theology of friendship. A lot of times our friendships arise out of convenience or proximity or out of some of those things Aristotle talked about uh, or out of the inner ring that we talked about last week. Uh, of wanting to be in the end group. Another thing that's a principle you can draw from Lewis is to really pray for God's guidance and to follow the spark of the Holy Spirit. God may want you to be friends with people that seem unlikely to you as friends. Um, take the initiative. Lewis is always taking the initiative, um, throwing the first ball out to see what happens. And he and you'll see this as you read these letters, he doesn't uh, beat around the bush, he just jumps deep. It's very similar to what you see with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a lot of time for small talk. Um, he jumps deep uh, pretty much right away. Uh, Lewis is very vulnerable. He asks people for prayer, he admits his faults, he asks for advice, um, and he takes the initiative to pray for people and say, what may I pray for you about? Another thing that is really interesting is to consider how God desires to use you in your friend's life. And this is probably, if you're like me, not something you really think about very much, but to take a step back and think about, okay, God has put me in relationship with this person. What might God be up to with that? What is there that I might be able to call out or encourage in my friend? What is it that I may be good at where I can be of help to my friend? And of course the converse, what is it in that friend that may respond to some need that I have or a way that I need to grow? Uh, being willing to think through those kinds of things. Assess your conversations. This is painful. Sorry to say, it's kind of like when you have to go and look at what you're actually spending your money on versus what you say your priorities are. Uh, but one of the things that's important is to think about, what do I talk about with my friends most of the time? You know, is it just sports? Is it just 
the Kardashians, you know, what, what is it? Um, and are the things that I'm spending time talking about things that matter eternally? And that doesn't mean that that's all you can talk about and that, you know, you have kind of this grim, humorless, puritanical view of conversation. That's not it at all. But think about this, the wonder that we saw in that Mythopoeia poem and think about how can I inhabit my conversations with that kind of wonder and encouragement and joy. And the power of words, Lucy Colton is so big on the power of words. Uh, we use our words to criticize and cut down so much, but we have the power to encourage people, to give them strength, to give them joy, to bless them, but we choose not to do that. And Lewis is like the floodgate of that. You see that when you read these letters. Um, another thing to think about is, do you have friends of different ages and backgrounds? Many of us in our culture, we tend to have friends of the same gender, the same age, the same socioeconomic background, all of those kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with loving those people. But if that's the only group of people you love, you are shortchanging yourself and you are shortchanging other people who may need you in their life. So I would encourage you to pray that God would create that spark and you might develop some relationships with people who are maybe a little bit different, a different age, a different generation, a different culture, um, from which you can learn uh, from each other. Another thing is do you pray regularly for your friends? So important. Um, are you praying qualities into them. Some of you um, have been in Jeff's study about Ephesians. The Ephesians prayer is a great prayer to pray for people, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. You know, all of those things. Um, praying scripture for people is a wonderful thing to do. Do you have a spiritual mentor? If you don't have a spiritual mentor, find one. Um, it's a really beautiful and helpful thing. Are you being a spiritual mentor for someone who's younger? You can learn as much or more often from being a spiritual mentor than you can from having one. And then again, what priority does friendship have in your life? All right, we're going to finish believing. <laughs> so fellowship, koinonia, that uniquely biblical term for Christian friendship, is distinctive to the Christian faith. And Lewis would have said, this is the ultimate supreme example of that seeing the same truth. And the self-sacrificial love, a focus on the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, and prayer. And you see this in Lewis's relationships in scripture. He talks about scripture all the time. The inklings, when they would go on walks, they would read scripture together. They would pray together every time they encountered a little church. They would pray for each other, bearing one another's burdens. Um, all of these things, hugely, hugely, hugely important with Christian friends. So, some other things that you can draw from Lewis uh, that I think are consonant with scripture. Have regular time with your friends. You can't develop a relationship if you don't spend time together. Spend time praying together when you're with Christian friends. Have a prayer partner. Learn to ask good questions. How can I be praying for you? What's something you believe God's teaching you? When did you feel closest to God this week? What are you struggling with spiritually? What has brought you joy spiritually this week? 
What's something you've read that's delighted you? Um, incorporate scripture into your relationships. One of the great blessings of the phone, the iPhone, is you can text scripture to people just randomly. And it's so nice to get that instead of, you know, I locked myself out of the house from your teenager. You know, that can be a blessing. Um, read a Christian book with a friend. Uh, if you find that you run out of things that are meaningful to talk about, that's a great way to do it. Worship together, even if it just means putting a worship video on YouTube on your computer and standing in front of the computer together and singing. Um, that may feel awkward, but I will tell you some of the greatest times of fellowship I've had with people have been doing just that. Um, do a retreat together with some friends or some structured walks where you have topics to talk about. Mentor a younger Christian. And lastly, this wonderful quotation from the Four Loves. For a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is an instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? So since I ran out of time, I was planning on having some discussion, but I'm going to leave you with two questions to think about. The first question to think about is, out of all that we've talked about of Lewis's theology of friendship, what one thing most resonates with you in terms of a different way of viewing friendship than you viewed it before? Out of all of that theology of friendship, what's the one thing that most resonates with you? And then the second thing to think about is, what is one thing that you could change in your life with the help of the Holy Spirit that it would enable you to begin to live some of this out a little bit more completely. Okay, let me say a quick prayer for us and I'll let you go. Sorry, we're a little late. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift that you have given us and one another. We thank you that each person bears your image, that we are all scarred and distorted by sin, yet underneath that, there is the presence of Christ in the heart of those who know you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to open the eyes of our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to see the people whom you put into our lives for a purpose. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in this area of friendship, that the world might know that we are your disciples by how we love one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.